broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee. This is The Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones, presented by Hobson Chevrolet. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Here's Tom Block and Keith Jones. Another week is here, and we're still crying in our beer after what happened on Saturday. Cornflakes. Okay, KJ, Tom, with you. How are you? Are you all right? Cornflakes. Crying in cornflakes. Our therapeutic session began at uh, about 2, 3 in the morning or something after that game. And uh, maybe it started at one thirty. and finished little, at 2.30. That little editing suite, we didn't take any paint off its walls, did we? I don't think so. But anyway, uh, you've digested this now. Does no, it feel any better? I still have indigestion. Well, I, I mean, we're not into moral victories, uh, and there's certainly frustrations regarding officiating, which has been talked about ad nauseum, and we'll continue that uh, uh, on this edition of the show. Matter of fact, we'll try to advance the conversation. Rogers Redding is going to join us. He's the national officiating coordinator, and uh, we look forward to that interview. Can we fuss at him? Will that do any good? I, he doesn't have the jurisdiction over the ACC officials or that particular call. I, look, I'm not one that likes to blame officials. There's a lot of things that Florida State could have done better to win that game, including not commit false starts on the last drive. But uh, do you take any solace right now that they went toe-to-toe with Clemson, or is it all just, you know what, if we would mind our P's and Q's, we would have beat Clemson by a touchdown or 10? Coming from where Florida State came from, coming from the frustration and the and the outright anger I had, particularly at the defensive personnel after the North Carolina game when that little uh, video came out, I'm very impressed and very pleased with the progress that's been made from the shoulders up uh, by these kids. I think they now have gotten it. Uh, Whether they will continue it, whether they've fully gotten it, uh, I don't know. We'll see. But I think these youngsters understand now that it's a 60-minute ball game. You play every play. And if you're not going to play every play full speed, we'll get somebody else in there that will, even if they're not as talented, as old, as big, or as fast. And and and, and in that regard, as a fan, Tommy, I'm going to take a moral victory in the Clemson game. I thought they showed well. I think it was a great ball game. I think the country saw Florida State program uh, inch, inching back to where they expect it to be. And uh, so I, I'm going to take a moral victory. I don't want the team to. I don't want the coaches to. Uh, but I'm going to take the moral victory, and I'm going to be happy with it. Yeah, there is a lot of encouraging signs there. Now they've got to finish it up with four more games and less at stake. I mean, you're mathematically eliminated from the ACC win in the Atlantic, which not that anybody was talking about that going into last week. Uh, you know, you got to win out, including a bowl game, to get to 10 wins. You've got, a, you've got a chance to get Florida and win a – uh, state championship again, but it, it really starts this week against an NC State team that has as good a defensive line uh, as Clemson, maybe even better than Clemson, which it is in regard to DeAndre Francois' health, that's not the best-case scenario for Florida State. Well, and, and Florida State uh, amongst the nation's poorest in terms of giving up sacks, what, 27, I think, is the official stat number that uh, DeAndre and company uh, have suffered through it and maybe more importantly than that is is just the physical beating that he's been taking uh, I mean there were a couple of kids on the offensive line particularly on the right side with Dickerson and, and and Brock I mean they just had bad games I mean it was just a bad game there's no other way to explain it and uh, DeAndre unfortunately had to pay for it wanted to take a moment to uh, thank the fine folks at uh, Madison Social and Centrale uh, real quick uh, if you have not seen this this is brilliant, but in light of Jimbo being fined for his comments about the officiating, Madison Social is taking contributions 
uh, that ultimately will probably go to kids first, I, I think. But the, it's a $5 contribution. You can do it online at madisonsocial.com backslash jimbo-fine-contribution. Here we are on Wednesday. They started this uh, maybe Sunday night. Uh, they're up to about a grand at this point that they've raised already. So this is the marketing genius that is Madison Social. By the way, as it relates to Centrale, we've been telling you about it, the Italian parlor that's two doors down. Uh, we will stop telling you that Keith and I haven't been there because we have reservations next week. We are Wednesday. going. We, we are going. going next Wednesday. We're going to enjoy it. And then we can truly give reviews. But uh, we appreciate them uh, being on board. Uh, is there it, anything Matt Thompson can't turn into positive? I, it's unbelievable, isn't, isn't it? it? Though I mean, that's 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 pure brilliance. We had a guy from Clemson eating dog biscuits last week to raise to money. raise money for kids first. By the way, it was good to meet Clemson Tom. Clemson uh, Tom, big Twitter following. He, he was a good guy, although he still had some significant indigestion and heartburn when we saw him before the game. I I, I take it after the game. He I might have felt better. He probably was feeling. Although you know there was a little bit of indigestion throughout that game, even if you're on the Clemson side of things. Uh, yeah, nobody's going to be happy to say moral victory. Uh, you know, the things that have been talked about here, Nooney Murray obviously looked pretty good. Dalvin continues to look good. Dalvin's not going to get invited to New York. And I don't know what his final numbers are going to be, but if he goes for 200 this week at NC State, he's the all-time leading rusher in, in FSU history. And so if it doesn't get it this week, he'll get it next week. He's got a chance to be the leading rusher in the history of running backs in the state of Florida, which right now is Kevin Smith from UCF, who's like at 4,500 yards. We've we've sort of talked about this. I never thought I'd see somebody better than Warwick Dunn. And Warwick averaged a little bit more per carry, but, you know, Dalvin's got more weight on him. I I don't know. Dalvin's just been – it's been fun to watch his career. Well, and and it's a great conversation to compare the two, contrasting styles a little bit. Uh, I thought it was very appropriate uh, that Warwick was in the stadium Saturday when uh, Dalvin went over 1,000 yards for the season, making him just the second uh, Florida State running back with three consecutive 1,000-yard seasons. I think just the seventh in the history, entire history of the ACC to do it three consecutive years. Uh, I thought that was appropriate. Uh, I, I, those two runs, I, I will tell you, I, I, I saw Dion. I watched Dion. Dion's the fastest I've ever seen in a football uniform. Uh, Dalvin's second. He's the second fastest guy I've ever seen in a football uniform. Now, I don't know what that would translate to on a formal track because he's not been trained to run on a track. But in terms of running on a football field with a football uniform on, he's the second fastest person I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, it's it's been fun, and we've got at least a few more games, presuming he doesn't shock the world in early January and say, I'm coming back for my senior year, which why would he? Uh, you only got so much wear and tear on those tires. Hey, I, I don't want to um, alienate Warwick Dunn, who's not only one of the greatest human beings to ever be associated with Florida State, but probably in the history of the world. But connect the dots on this. I've, the last three games I've seen Warwick on the sideline was at Georgia Tech last year. He lives in Atlanta at the Chick-fil-A Bowl against Houston. And also they, in Atlanta. And this past Saturday night against Clemson. So, Warwick, we'll see you at the bowl game, yeah, son. I'll mail, you, <laughs> I'll, I'll mail you the DVD. Or, or You can come in for the uh, 1AA opponent, uh, the FCS opponent next year, so we can guarantee to break that string. All right, we're, we're going to get – Well, let's fast forward. Don't we play Alabama somewhere significant Oh, yeah, next and you'll probably be on the sideline for that too. So, boy, I just gave us the kiss of death. Hey, Rogers Redding, the national officiating quarter – coordinator will join us next segment and uh, we'll get a little more serious here talk about uh, the state of officiating in college football when we continue Can we target on him row. we'll target him next right after this I'll tell you what's more before I get up the floor don't bring me down 
listening to The Front Row with Tom Locke and Keith Jones. Got a question? Email them at thefrontrow at 979espnradio.com. Here's Tom and Keith. Front row, Tom and Keith, thanks so much for tuning in. We're going to continue the conversation now. Obviously, what prompted this was Florida State Clemson. We talked a little bit about uh, some of the officiating calls from the other day, but we want to advance the conversation here beyond this. And uh, kind enough to join us is the uh, National Officiating Coordinator, Rogers Redding. He's a former SEC coordinator of officials, longtime college football referee. First of all, thanks so much for a few minutes of your time. How are you, Rogers? I'm fine. Thank you. How are you guys doing? Good to hear from you. Yeah, we, we appreciate it. I guess my first uh, question to you, I, I feel like we live in this uh, era where people talk about conference-affiliated referees. I wasn't even aware that there was a national officiating coordinator. So what is your role uh, from a national point of view? Yeah, my role primarily is to work with the conferences, with those conference coordinators, to try to, uh, in, in terms of training the officials, in terms of uh, providing consistent interpretations of rulings, consistent mechanics. When we say mechanics, we talk about how we officiate a play on the field, who's responsible for which area, who's got which uh, receivers on a pass play, for example, and those kinds of things. So what we try to do is be as consistent as we can from one conference to the next around how we how we officiate the game. So that's my role is to try to bring some consistency and cohesion to the work that the, uh, that the coordinators do at the conference level. Can you set the landscape for how much training officials do nowadays, regardless of conference? I mean, we think about them, they're working games on Saturdays, but are they training year-round? Are they obligated to commit to X amount of hours per week of viewing and on-field practice? Just, just uh, for our knowledge and the general public's knowledge, how much goes into being a college official? Yeah, thanks. That's a good question, and, and it's, I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about it because it's turned into almost a year-round thing. You know, let's let's say that during the season, uh, the officials will, let's say if they work the game on a Saturday, let's say, uh, they will take away from that game a, a DVD or a downloadable video of that game, and they'll be looking at that game during the week. They will, each crew, the referee and each crew will, will make out a test just as a learning check for the officials and the crew that week when they gather. And so they'll be looking at video in the week. I put up a training video every two weeks for all the officials. The conference coordinators also do some training videos and quizzes and learning checks and those kinds of things. And then when the crew gets together on a Friday night at the game site, they will view the video of last week's game. They will talk a little bit about what the next day, what the next day will bring. And then before the game, about five hours before the game on game day, they will have a pregame conference that goes probably two, two and a half hours, something like that. Then they start the week all over again. That's during the season. During the off season, there are clinics. There's there's a, a national coordinator. There's two national coordinators meetings a year that I run. There are conference clinics. There are individual clinics. Um, there are workshops. So there's all kinds of activity going on. And of course, during the spring. You've got spring football. The officials are officiating scrimmages, practice sessions, spring games. So there's quite a lot of, of activity, study groups, little study groups form in local areas during the off season. 
So the season, obviously, is a different deal from golf season, but there's always something going on in terms of training, evaluation, and and guys improving their skills or looking to move up from, let's say, from Division Two to Division One. So it's become a very much a year-round activity at, at all levels of officiating. Rogers, KJ here. You sound like an old soul like myself. I played uh, for Florida State in the late 70s. I I think one of the things that we forget about, uh, particularly over the last 30 years, plus or minus, is is two main things. Number one, there used to be 120, 125 snaps in a football game. Now now you can get uh, 180, 190 snaps. So just in terms of the sheer numbers of calls that have to be made, as well as everybody going four and five wide, spreading it out. I mean, your guys, there's no fat referees, no fat officials anymore. They're running around all the time. And then secondly, we've got, you know, we play a national game. When I was playing, you have four cameras. Now you got 14. You got every angle under the sun. I mean, this job has gotten very complex and very complicated over the years. Yeah, it has. And and one of the reasons that you talk about the the appearance of the officials, I mean, an awful lot of what they do during the offseason, during the season, is physical training. They're running. You know, these guys are, are running. They're lifting weights. They're they're paying attention to how they look because everybody's on TV now, so you don't want to look like a fat slob, you know, officiating <laughs> the game. And, and you can't do it. And so if you think about the number of number of calls that an official makes in the game, you know, there are 22 players on the field, and there are seven or now eight officials. So – you can you can see that right away. Each official is responsible for, uh, you know, more than two players, and so then on any given play, each player is going to do at least five things that have to do with the rules: how they're lined up, whether they're moving or not before the snap, and then once the snap takes place, how are they blocking? Are they holding? What are they doing? So there's a there's a tremendous number, and as you say, the number of snaps has gone up. So now you're looking at a 180, 190 plays in the game. So take those those five you know five things that each player is doing times twenty two times one hundred and ninety plays. There's a tremendous amount of number of decisions that are made in every game by every official. We're talking with Rogers Redding. He is the national officiating coordinator, a former SEC coordinator of officials. How has the uh, some of the conferences are are using collaborative replay this year? What's the early returns on how that has worked? It's going very, very well. Uh, it, it, it's interesting. We, we've got a good situation where we've got sort of different models for the different conferences. The SEC and the ACC are both using a video center at their at their conference office. The Big Ten and the Mid-American Conference are using a, a referee with a tablet on the sideline. He's watching the, the play. Uh, the Pac-12 is using a video center. They're using it for two institutions. Uh Cal and Oregon, I believe, don't hold me to those two, but anyway, two. So, so we're getting a sense of what best practices might be here. But it seems clear early on that the returns are good on this. That you've got a, a another pair of set of eyes at the at the conference video center, and the and the big thing is they're looking at all the replays across the conference or across their games, and so they can. That's going to lead to better consistency of replay decisions. So. The guy in the booth at the stadium is still making the decision, but there's strong collaboration between that individual and the replay official in the booth at the stadium and the the uh, replay officials looking at these back at the conference offices. And by the way, those are replay officials that are uh, that are looking at these plays at the conference office. These are guys that are that have replay official experience. They're trained as replay officials, 
So it's not just a, another set of football officials. These guys have, you know, training as replay officials. So we'll see how this goes. But uh, the, the early returns, and here we are just a little beyond midway of the season, uh, are, are very, very good. Well, in addition to all the rules that uh, we've known about, we've introduced this interesting thing called targeting. And I want to talk in just a minute. We'll, st- we'll start with the quarterback position. I don't think people realize, you correct me if I'm wrong, but there's three basic things that can be done to a quarterback that are illegal. You can hit them late, however you hit them. You can hit them above the shoulders, or you can attack them with the crown of the, of the helmet. Talk about each in, you know each individual thing of those three calls that that, that an umpire's got to pay attention to. Yeah, and there's actually a fourth one. Uh, as of a couple of years ago, you cannot make forcible contact at the near. You are correct. I forgot about the, that. You're correct. If the quarterback's in a passing posture, so that that adds another level of safety for the quarterback. Um, I think the targeting foul continues to be a challenge for the players and the officials. Uh, I think that the officials have gotten more adept at calling it. And that's why the rules committee was comfortable in having disqualification as a part of the penalty. I think it's also the case that, that the expanded role of replay this year, where now the replay official is, is basically reofficiating the play, instead of just looking at one piece of it, he's looking at it overall. And also now the replay official can actually create a targeting foul if there's one that's obvious on the field that was simply missed by the officials. So I think the targeting foul. Now, and you mentioned the quarterback. I mean, clearly the quarterback is, you know, sort of first among equals. I mean, the, the, you know, so in many cases, the team goes as a quarterback, though, so you want to protect that, that individual. And, and certainly the crown of the helmet, the head and neck area of the quarterback as a defenseless player, uh, and also the, the, you know, the knee and, and the crown of the helmet. So those are areas that, that we really pay a lot of attention to. And, and, and we're still going to miss some. And, but, but player behavior has changed. I know the numbers are about the same, but we can see player behavior changing. I can see a situation where a quarterback could drive back to pass, and in the old days he would have been decapitated. And now you can see players holding up or at least going for the chest area and, uh, and the midsection rather than the head or neck area or down low at the ankles and knees. So I think player behavior is clearly changing here. And, and this, is a, this is going to be, continue to be a challenge for the coaches and the players, the targeting foul, because it is so dangerous and, and the penalty is so severe. Uh, and it's going to continue to be one that, that we're going to have to, get, have to have to evolve. It's evolved in the four or five years that it's been been in, in as part of the rule. So I think it will we'll continue to tweak it. But the, the, the main thing is the safety of the player. That's got to be – that's got to top everything else. I think one of the things from my perspective that I've been most interested watching, and I, and I, I would tell you that I, w- I would say a little bit critical that it's not being watched enough, but that is the use of the crown when striking the quarterback. We've seen that here at Florida State, and I know you haven't studied uh, FSU's exact uh, film, so we won't hold you accountable for that. But there's been numerous times when uh, Francois has been hit, particularly in the sternum, with the crown of the helmet. And that's a foul, whether you hit him late, early, or in between, as I understand it. Is that correct? As long as there is some kind of element of targeting, we, we call the elements of targeting. If there's a launch, if there's a crash and a thrust, if, there's a, if there is clearly, clearly you know, leading with the helmet as a weapon. I mean, we've got to catch that, and if we miss them, we, we should not. But, you know, just, just because the crown happens to hit the, the sternum, Unless it's really clearly led with the crown, unless it's clearly some element of targeting like a launch, 
then it might not be a foul. But I would guess that, you know, 80 percent of the time when the crown is used, it ought to be called as a foul. I want to move the, the conversation forward a little bit. I asked you about collaborative replay. Yeah. Uh, and, and when I reached out to you initially, uh, there, there's been this idea about nationalizing officials, and we'll get to how the feasibility of that. But uh, you would understand, certainly with your number of years as an official, that regardless of whether there is any bias, people assume there is conference bias. And we're in an era right now where with the college football playoff, non-conference games are more important than ever. So you're going to have matchups, SEC, ACC, and it's going to come back to, well, those were SEC refs or those were ACC refs or Big Ten refs. So even if there's not bias, if there was nationalized refs, it would eliminate some of that. But more than that, I think it would it would go to what you said initially, that you might have more consistency in how the rules are enforced if we did have nationalized uh, officials. So I'll let you react to that, and I understand there'd be a, a significant cost to that, but this is a billion-dollar industry, and we have part-time employees that are officiating games on Thursday nights and Saturdays. Right. Yeah, that, that conversation always, that topic comes up often in conversation. And, and I think that there's a couple of things to say about it. First of all, the, the conferences, let me back up a step. The, the officials that officiate a game, which conference has chosen to do that, is determined by the two institutions. There's a contract for every game. There's a contract between the two universities. And part of that contract is to state, you know, who, where the officials are going to come from. There have been some situations where the officials in the in the game uh, come from a third conference. For example, uh, the games that have been played the last two or three years at, at Arlington at AT&T Stadium, uh, the, the, those early sort of kickballs, they don't call them this anymore, but you know what I'm talking about, the, the first game of the season right, a couple yeah. years ago, Alabama played Wisconsin, and in that, in that case it was the Big 12 crew uh, where you had a Big 10 and SEC teams. Uh, so it happens. It happens occasionally, but the, the the choice of which conference or or which conference of the two or or a third conference, that's that's up to the the teams that play the game. And so my degrees of freedom there are limited around that. Uh, I do have responsibility for signing the conferences for the bowl games. Those are always neutral proofs in the sense that a third conference, you know, not not one of the conferences of the two teams. So I think this is something that the conferences and the institutions. Are, are talking about. I'm not sure if, it's, if we're going to see a, a change in that direction, uh, but I, I get the point that, that there is this perception that somehow uh, there might be some bias there, and we understand that. We know going into this that people are going to assume that there's some, you know, some the conspiracy theorists are always going to be with us. That's just back to life. But I think it's important to understand that, that it's, the, it's the two institutions in the game that have decided where the officials are going to come from. Well, I'm just thinking about compared to the NFL, and I know in some respects it's apples and oranges, but, uh, you know, you don't have AFC East officials, for lack of a better term, and, and all the ire or the fans' angst gets directed to Roger Goodell and the NFL commissioner. Now, we don't have a commissioner yet in college football, but I'm pretty sure in Greensboro this week they would be fine if the referees associated with the FSU-Clemson game were, were not ACC officials but had uh, you know were attached to a national or at least a regional organization. Well, what do you see as the realistic uh, next steps then in the evolution uh, of officiating? Because uh, technology is only getting better and the stakes and the dollars are only getting higher at this point. We'll continue with our, you know, one of the things that's, that's revolutionized how we train officials, and that is use of video. I mean, we're using video all the time. And, you know, when I was officiating, it, you know, it's only been like 20 years since I got off the field. And in, in that length of time, I mean, then we, we saw very little video at all. 
that is that has transformed how we how we train officials. I think the use of technology you, you see it all the time. Officials are, are becoming individually more and more adept at using technology. So I think the technology is going to continue to 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 cause more scrutiny and also cause us to be to be more exacting in our training and in our evaluation officials. I mean officials are are held accountable. They're disciplined. That, that's kept below the radar screen quite often, but officials are, are disciplined. They're suspended. You know, when I was a coordinator with SDC, we would tend to overturn our staff maybe 5% every year just to, because guys would retire or dismiss for, for performance. So it's not as if these guys were just skating by without any evaluation or any, any criticism at a, at a, and from an official, from a conference standpoint. I think the notion of, of having a, a national officiating program the logistics of that and the cost of that is something that the conferences are, are still talking about, but I think, it, I think it's down the road in terms of, of actually putting it together. If you think about the NFL, I mean, that's a very small universe. They've got 32 teams. Uh, they've got a, you know, they're all in one, they're all in the same league. They have, they have standards around how their officials are chosen, those kinds of things. And so it's a, it's a size effect as much as anything else. If you think about the fact that just in the P5 purposes in, in college football, you've got like 65 teams. And so right away, you've got a, just in that, in that division, you've got twice the size of the NFL in terms of number of teams. So it's, a, it's an issue that would have to be grappled with in terms of logistics, cost, how you would do it, how you would choose the officials, those kinds of things. So I think, I think it's probably moving towards some more national kind of thing, but I, I think it's, I think it's, a, it's a ways away just because of, the fact that this is something the conferences are going to have to to, to get their arms around. Rogers, quick, uh, quick, simple question. The answer may be long, but the question's short. Will we ever see the collegiate game go to the NFL model where the on-field official is making the call, not a replay official in the booth? You're talking about on instant replay? Correct. Uh, I, 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 it's hard to say. The, the, here's the, philo- the philosophy. I'll try to make this a short answer. I know I'm kind of long-winded. But the philosophy here is this. In the NFL, the philosophy is that the crew, by way of the referee, that just officiates the play, reofficiates that play. In the in the NCAA, the philosophy of replay is the officials on the field have done their thing, and now someone else looks at the play. It's a different philosophy, and they both work work well in their own environments. I think the Big Ten model, where as a part of the replay collaborative process, the referee is looking at a tablet on the sideline to know what the play looks like, so that he can better communicate, you know, what the outcome of the review is. I think that might be a step toward getting the referee more involved in this. Uh, and I, but it would take a change at the rule at the at the NCAA rules committee level to flip the philosophy, to change to the NFL philosophy where you're reofficiating the play if you just officiated, as distinct from having a, uh, a, a, another set of eyes that was not involved in calling that play, looking at it from a replay. Understood. Rogers, we'll uh, we'll stop the conversation here now. I know you've got uh, multiple other interviews like this, uh, and we could we could pepper you with questions all day. But we appreciate your insight very much. Uh, I think the general college football fan, and and maybe this is one of the things that will continue to evolve. There's just I, I feel like if you're outside of the officiating world, you don't know a lot about the process and what's involved. And so this is helpful. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity. I, I try to interact with with the media folks as much as I can, and I'm always available. So. Don't hesitate to call me or send me an email or text me if you have questions that, that come up that, that uh, you know, should, should come to my 
you come to my attention. So I appreciate being with you guys. All righty. Thank you so much. That is Rogers Redding. He is the uh, national officiating coordinator. Again, a former SEC coordinator of officials, longtime referee on the field. Uh, matter of fact, he was involved in the uh, the 91 Orange Bowl, which was Colorado, Notre Dame, the 93 Sugar Bowl, which was Alabama, Miami, the 98 Rose Bowl, Michigan, Washington State. So been around a little he, bit. He's been around a little bit. And uh, that was really good perspective. All right. There's a lot to react to. We'll take a break. Uh, it'll be a, a, a short timeout. Uh, we still have timeouts in the bag, right? And we'll, we'll take this one here. We'll come back and react to his comments right after this. No dark sarcasm in the classroom. Broadcasting live from the Prime Meridian Bank Studios in the capital city of Tallahassee. This is the Front Row with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Presented by Hobson Chevrolet. Get your best deal the Hobson way. Here's Tom Block and Keith Jones. Back on the front row, a big thanks to uh, Rogers Redding for joining us, the National Officiating Coordinator. He joined us, by the way, via the Earl Bacon Agency hotline, ensuring your future together. And, KJ, uh, I mentioned it to him. You and I could have asked him, we could have gone down every rule in the book and said, okay, whose responsibility is this? How do you officiate this? And actually, at the ACC Media Days, which is the ACC kickoff, they do do a rules seminar with the coordinator of officials. And it's very interesting because they put up video and they say, and they'll even have a little... This official is circled. He's looking at this. Here's who's looking at the left guard. So it's interesting to The to officials learn that. have to line up properly, just like the players have to line up properly. And then when Coach uh, Fisher talks about eye discipline, the officials have to have eye discipline because they're not looking at everything. They're looking at specific things. Let me, let me we'll point save out, that for another show. Let, let me just point out this because listeners may ask this. I did not specifically ask Rodgers uh, about the Freddie Stevenson call. Two reasons. Number one, he doesn't coordinate the ACC officials, so I don't know if he's watched it. Number two, anytime we've ever had a conversation with, with, for instance, the late Doug Rhodes, who was very good and explained things, I've never heard a coordinating or a supervisor official say, you know what? They missed it. They missed it. Now, behind the scenes, they may suspend a crew, so it wasn't worth the waste of airtime to ask that question because the answer was going to be, well, actually, if you look at it from this, you know, if it's the Zapruder film and you look at frame 32 – so we didn't go down that road. That said, uh, I feel like the targeting conversation maybe is something we should react to even more than than the Stevenson call, which we didn't discuss. Well, let's then. tie this back into some of Jimbo's comments. Jimbo believes that DeAndre has been targeted in the pocket and that there should have been fouls. I went back yesterday afternoon and, and looked at the rule, and that's why I, pr- I framed the question. I forgot about the new rule about the lower body. Uh, there's four things, uh, as uh, Rogers appropriately pointed out. The targeting foul at the quarterback level has got two components. Number one, if it's above the shoulders, it doesn't matter if it's a helmet, a hand, a foot. <laughs> if you get them above the shoulders, you're going to get flagged for it, and sometimes you're going to get a targeting call and an ejection. The crown of the helmet, however, is a two-part rule. Number one, it has to be the quarterback, has to be in the pocket, has to be during a throw or immediately after a throwing motion. It has to hit the defender has to hit with the crown of the helmet, and then as Rogers was appropriately talking about, there's a second part to it. There has to be a launching, a crouching, a deliberate attempt. I don't know how you judge a deliberate attempt, but it is a two part thing. So if I just run into the quarterback with the crown of my helmet, picture the Three Stooges, and Mo has a helmet on. And he just bends over at the waist and runs into the wall. 
and hits it with the top of his head. That technically is not targeting. I would like to see that rule changed. And I think Coach Fisher would be would be agreeable. Uh, and I've not talked to him about it. But the point being, if you hit the t- quarterback above the waist, below the shoulders, with the crown of the helmet, it's an automatic foul, regardless of there's launching intent or deliberation. Well, and that removes that any removes any from the exactly. officials. It's just, well, the crown of the helmet hit the quarterback, and that does protect the quarterback. And so, therefore, you teach your defensive people, which is what I was taught, 35 years ago, you hit what you see. In other words, instead of ducking your head and hitting with the top of your head, you set your head into your shoulder pads, which is what they're designed to do. That helmet is designed to fit into those shoulder pads, and you hit with your face mask. And I got no problem when you tackle with your face mask because that's what I was taught to do. But the top of the head would become, in my perfect world, an automatic foul above the waist, below the shoulders. I haven't talked to Jimbo about that, but uh, one <clears throat> excuse me, one thing he did mention to me the other day when we taped his coach's show, and he's mentioned this before, he is a proponent of nationalizing officials. Now, I don't know if he's going to get more vocal about that in light of the fine this week. I don't think he was going to talk too much more about officiating. But if you get him after the season, I, I think he is. He would be in favor of it. So so what you have, and we didn't, I, I didn't ask this to Rodgers uh, either. Perhaps I should have, but he's not going to disclose what officials make. But just like there's a pecking order in terms of the the top conference in college football well there's a pecking order in terms of which conference pays the most to its officials so you can do the math and figure out that if the sec has been the top conference the sec is paying its officials more which means what the secs have better officials than the other four conferences whether that's true potentially or not, potentially i don't know if that's true or not that perception is there again and that's you know so if you nationalize officials you eliminate some of that you eliminate some of the oh the FSU brought its officials with them to Gainesville here for in this 2003 game or, or what, you know, that sort of thing. One other point about uh, Jimbo, uh, and this is a criticism. One of the problems that Jimbo has about being listened to is that he barks all the time. It's a constant barking on the sideline. And at some point, that side official, line judge, side judge, whichever it is, just tunes him out completely. I mean, when you cry wolf and cry wolf and cry wolf and cry wolf, people quit quit listening. Now, that's Jimbo's decision to do what he wants to. It's his decision to coach the way he wants to. It's his decision to berate officials the way he wants to. But Jimbo's not going to get listened to as much as he could be listened to because of that. I don't know if he cares. I've not talked to him about it. He certainly hadn't asked my opinion. But that's a fact. And therefore, the conference doesn't pay attention to Florida State near as much as they pay attention to other schools on those Mondays and Tuesdays when those clips go in and they question fouls. That's a fact. So let me give you two counterpoints to that. First of all, I live in a Florida State bubble, so I don't have the perspective of how much other coaches berate the officials on a regular basis. Second of all, if you talk basketball, you never see him wear a mic, but one of the most foul-mouthed coaches around is Coach K, and he wears the officials out from opening tip to the final horn. But the officiating calls don't go against Duke the way, in my garnet and gold eyes, they appear to go against Florida State. I'm not discounting your your opinion. How about I, how about we use a Jimbo phrase? We can either agree to agree, or we can agree to disagree, or we can control what we can control and pay attention to the process. That said. I'm going to control the fact that we're going to take a timeout right now. We'll come back with our Seminoles.com. How long will the timeout be? 
I don't know. We have such a plethora of sponsors that it might be hours before we're back to continue this program with our Seminoles.com insider, Tim Linnefelt, right after this. Listening to the front row with Tom Block and Keith Jones only on 97.9 ESPN Radio. Here's Tom and Keith. Tim's walk-up music again in light of what happened over the weekend at Clemson, and we thought it appropriate to go with a little bad company. Not that Tim is bad company, but uh, maybe we're referring to the folks that were wearing stripes over the weekend. Well, I don't know. That's what it would be if we had to hang out with the officials. It would be bad company. There we go. Our Seminoles.com insider is Tim Linnefeld. He joins us via the Earl Bacon Agency hotline, ensuring your future together. Tim, I like the new riff. I'm hoping that we don't have to continue to change this on a weekly basis, however. Well, you know, I really thought that uh, that Eddie and Pearl Jam wouldn't let us down, but I guess they've got all their sports mojo behind the Cubs right now, it would seem. So here we are. Uh, if you want to call me bad company, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's midweek now, and I'm not sure if we feel better or worse or more frustrated about what happened on Saturday. Keith and I, we had an extended conversation about officiating uh, earlier in this program with Rogers Redding, the, uh, the national officiating coordinator, and you're probably in agreement here. I think most folks in the media are not the ones that believe there's a conspiracy theory and the refs are out to get you and all that sort of thing. I don't generally like to look back at games and say, well, really, you can hang this one on the officials. Uh, and there's a lot of places you could point in terms of things Florida State didn't do correctly. But that that Freddie Stevenson call was rather glaring, and, and maybe you can hang this one on the officials. It was tough. You know, look, I definitely don't think it was the right call. I think it was a difficult time to make that call, and it's a kind of play that I think probably happens a lot in a football game and goes uncalled. I think if you were to ask the ACC league office, they might tell you that by the letter of the law that maybe it's the right call and they're standing behind it. But I think in those circumstances, it's a tough time to make that particular play to throw that particular flag and then to throw the personal foul with, with the sideline infraction on top of it, obviously just, you know, made everything that much worse. And, and it was, it was, it was wild just how much that, that sequence changed the tone of that game. I mean, you, you really sort of felt like Florida state had Clemson on its heels, even after allowing the touchdown that made it 28, 26, because at that point it was pretty clear that you know, not only could they not stop Dalvin Cook, but that he could go for, you know, a, a home run essentially, at, at any point, and, and that was the, you know, the third one. I know he didn't score a touchdown on the play, but it was, a, it was I think, a third run of, of 40 or more yards. He'd already had two. Uh, and so at that point, you're, you're thinking Florida State's in, in great shape. And then a few minutes later, they've got first and a mile from, you know, after a penalty that sets them half the distance to the goal. It was just a huge, huge swing. Plus, they, they marked the original call from the wrong spot. That's a yeah, spot, that's a spot foul, not a line of scrimmage foul. Right, right. Well, well, and, and what, what was it? It, it? Everything was kind of going so quick. I, I thought they said it was was it first and sixteen after the, the initial penalty, and they didn't mark off the whole the whole yardage. 
I, I, I'm just going by memory. I didn't go, go back and look I didn't at the go tape. back and, and look at the tape either. I heard Ira say on headlines that they did actually mark it correctly. I don't know. Okay. Maybe, uh, I, maybe I'm mistaken. So I'm not sure. I know Jimbo referenced that after the game. Well, really, I mean, uh, there, there's no point in continuing down this road because that call is not going to change. So to me, the biggest thing we've got going this week, Tim, is purely motivational. I mean, uh, here we are on Wednesday, and we're talking about this call. If the team is thinking back about this call, uh, then it's a lost cause for Saturday. So, Particularly where you're going on Saturday yeah. and what your recent track record so is. So to me, getting right above the shoulders is the most important task that the coaching staff and Jimbo had this week with the team. Absolutely, and and you know it's going to be tough. It's never easy to to bounce back from a tough loss like that. If you if you want to know what can happen if if you don't get right after losing a close game like that, especially the Clemson, I uh, just take a look at NC State. They they, they had in, uh, Clemson dead to rights a few weeks ago, a thirty three yard field goal that would have won the game in Death Valley. Uh, instead, they they missed the kick, losing overtime, and that's the first of three straight losses, with the last of which was a pretty embarrassing loss to Boston College at home. So. Uh, I would go out on a limb here and say that had NC State beat Clemson, maybe they still lose to Louisville, but I doubt they lose to Boston College, and I doubt that they get undressed by Louisville the way that they did. So a, a good cautionary tale there, not that Florida State is, is NC State in terms of, of talent level or anything like that, but you know the old cliche is you can't let the, the game beat you twice, and, and that's where you're at here, especially you guys alluded to it, Raleigh and Carter-Finley Stadium has been something of a house of horrors for Florida State. Even the game they won there two years ago, it took getting down, what was it, 24-7 to before they came back and won. Before that, uh, I don't know historically that they've ever played there, played, played very well there for an extended period of time. And you would think if NC State's ever going to get back on track or try to get back on track and play well, it's going to be a night game against Florida State. Well, and I, I remember, uh, I don't remember the distinct, I was going to say distinctly, I don't remember distinctly here, but I remember Winky going up there and throwing six interceptions in a ball game. 98. So it, I mean, it, it's it's not just recent, although that's the part we're talking about under the Fisher era, but uh, there's a history with NC State going well, way back. Well, I think for NC State, when Chuck Amato went up there and coached him, uh, you know, they had a lot of success with Phillip Rivers, obviously, was part of it. In the early 2000s, they started to believe and they've had more success than anybody, really, since FSU's been in the ACC. Uh, Clemson obviously has changed things around in the last decade compared to the 90s. Well, Tim, we know that Bobo's going to be out again this week. We know that Nooney all of a sudden looks like an all-star. Uh, what else do you have for us in terms of, of nicks and bruises going into this game? It's, it's hard to say this early in the week. Uh, I, you know, Bobo Wilson, I think, was a big one. I was surprised that, that Jimbo Fisher updated his status so soon. Um, but otherwise, I, you know, I think they're they're fairly healthy. Uh, a few guys are looking to wait and see on. But but like I said this early in the week, it's kind of hard to say. I, Wednesday and Thursday are kind of the big ones, and you, where you kind of can start separating who's who's really banged up and who's just a sort of you know sore from Saturday. But I think they're in actually pretty good shape uh, going into it. I'm going to switch gears real quick. We haven't done justice to uh, other Florida State sports of late, so uh, we've got an exhibition game tomorrow night for men's hoops. Uh, the basketball season, both men's and women's, Tim, is now, what, nine days away from tip-off? Yeah, the women start next Friday, and the men are a day later. So it's, it's a really busy weekend. It should be a fun weekend. you got women's basketball, men's basketball home openers. Of course, the uh, the home football game against Boston College on Friday, and then the concert at Joe Campbell Stadium Saturday night. So it's going to be a pretty full weekend. I don't know how much time you've been to basketball practice, but my sense is both the women and the men could be really good this year. Is that uh, accurate or too early to tell? No, I think it's definitely accurate. Uh, I think both of them have high expectations. The, you know, the women's program, I, I think, speaks for itself and what they've done there. You know, Sue Simmer stated goal for 
several years it's been to build a top 10 program and I, you know, I would say that they've done that. They might say they have a, a little bit more to go, but they're, but they're obviously close. I mean, there's there's not many teams in the country that can say they have a returning Olympic silver medalist, uh, but Florida State does in, in Leticia Romero, and she played a pretty significant part on that Spanish national team. Uh, and then when you add in, you know, Shaquilla Thomas is here for her junior year. You get Imani Wright, who played at Baylor before transferring, and, and if anybody you know pays attention to women's college basketball knows if you're, if you're good enough to be a Baylor, you're a really good player. So they have high expectations. Over on the men's side, I think we're all just kind of curious to see what kind of steps Dwayne Bacon takes in his second year. I think everybody sort of thought that he would be a one-and-done type of guy this time a year ago, and he sort of surprised everybody by coming back for his sophomore year. I think that the big thing he needed to do as a freshman to, to, to improve his NBA stock was become a better shooter. He was really good at everything, really good at getting to the basket, but his outside shooting, uh, wasn't probably up to a professional level. From everything we've been able to gather, that's what he spent the offseason working on and, and hearing from practice and watching him. He he knocks him down. Now, practice is one thing in games or the other, but he obviously has spent a lot of time uh, owning that part of his game. So between him and then Jonathan Isaac, the, uh, the post player, I think if, if you've seen him around campus, he's hard to miss. He's, he's huge. He has a really cool haircut, and he just kind of looks like a basketball player. The highest-rated recruit, I believe, in the history of the program, uh, at least you know since they started measuring that sort of thing. So between those two guys and also Xavier Rattan Mays, hopefully let him you know be a little bit more of a distributor and not count on him to score the basketball as much as what you'd like out of your point guard. Uh, there's some good pieces there. It's a matter of just you know putting them together and, and making things happen. But talent shouldn't be an issue. Obviously, the ACC is, is a bit of a meat grinder, but I do think they should be able to hold their own. To uh, expand that a little further, the two guys I'm most excited about seeing are guys that we've seen in the past, that being Kofer and Ojo. You know, if Ojo can give you six or eight points and four or five rebounds before he fouls out with uh, eight minutes left in the first half, <laughs> and, and Kofer, who was playing like a 30-year-old because of his uh, uh, just his knowledge of basketball and his demeanor, uh, I mean, you've got two returning guys that missed all of last year that also add to the mix with the new guys. Well, it should make – I'm cutting in on Tim. It should bring toughness back to him with those two guys back. Very much so. Well, sure, and, and just – the toughness and the size, and that's one thing they really did miss down in the post last year. And Boris Bojanowski kind of felt like he was on an island beneath the basket. And, and for you know all that he was able to do, I don't know that anybody would confuse him for a dominant physical force. So just having those those kind of big tough guys that, that aren't going to back down when you're coming into the basket, at least give you something to think about. I think is definitely valuable. And you know, Keith, you joked about the uh, the foul and fouling out, but just having more fouls to give, especially in the post, was Good a point. for them last year. Good point. You know, not, not to say that those guys are there just for fouls. I don't think they will be, but just having bodies that can give some so that your other guys don't have to, I think it's probably going to be pretty beneficial too. On the soccer pitch, Tim, the uh, women's team won in uh, penalty kicks over Duke in Durham this past weekend. To so they they haven't lost an ACC tournament game in like four years now because they won back to back to back titles. So now they're in the semis at the ACC tournament. Do they play Carolina next? Is that right? No, they will play Clemson next. Okay, and is that in Cary, North? Yeah, I think it's in. I don't know if it's in Clemson, but it's in South Carolina. Okay, that was and my question. It's not in right. North Carolina. That got moved out of North Carolina too because of H two. Right. 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 All right. So, so a- any predictions then? If uh, you know, are they going to make it four in a row here? Never bet against the streak, Tom. They haven't lost an ACC game in what almost four years. I'm, I'm I'm riding with them until they tell me not to. Never mess with a winning streak. Good advice from uh, from Bull Durham. Tim, anything else uh, you would like to add before we say adios until next week? Uh, you know, I think that's pretty good. Uh, 
think we, we kind of made the rounds. Uh, did you see uh, Dana Castellanos? Did you see her uh, her goal against uh, against Duke the other day? Her go- penalty kick. Her goal was tremendous uh, to the point that I even called my wife over who could care less. But I said, you don't realize how difficult a goal. I had to set it up and say she just spent nine games playing for the Venezuelan national team. And then I said, I mean, it was absurdly good. It's worth Googling. You could probably say that about half her goals this year, but that was really good. No, it's it's unbelievable. And, and I you said don't need to Google it. It could be on Seminoles.com, <laughs> couldn't it? It could be. It could be. Just go to Seminoles.com and, and, no, and no, then search. The crazy, the crazy thing about it is like it wasn't luck or accident. I, I mean, she knew what she was doing, and she did exactly what she meant to do. It was crazy. I I almost feel for the keeper. You mean how many how many players at that level can do that? I don't think there's very many. Yeah, I'm just gonna. I played very low level soccer, and I was a keeper for a little while, Keith. And since you didn't see this highlight, basically the ball comes back out of the box. So as the keeper, you're kind of taking a breath, you know. But before you even inhale, she had already launched the shot out of the air from like waist level into the top right corner of the goal. It was it was absurd. I appreciate you explaining that, Tom. Let me remind you of my background in soccer. Uh, where I come Soccer's from. Soccer is the sport where you kick the ball. Where I come from, we called it kickball. <laughs> well, and there you go. Well, check this one out during the break, Keith. I think you'll be impressed. <laughs> <laughs> I shall. All right. He is our Seminoles.com insider, Tim Linnefeld, who joined us uh, on the Earl Bacon Agency Hotline. Thanks, Tim. All right, guys. We'll see you. All right. We'll come back and uh, we'll explore Keith Jones' prowess on the kickball field when we wrap things up on the front row right after this. Listening to the front row with Tom Block and Keith Jones. Got a question? Email them at the front row at 979ESPNRadio.com. Here's Tom and Keith. You never know what you'll get when you're in the front row, and in this particular case, you're going to get kickball discussion. So well, please no, do elaborate. It, it, we played it on the baseball field, the small baseball field with the 60 foot bases, and it was the old timey red multi-purpose ball and you would pitcher would roll it and you would run and kick it from the batters from the home plate and you would play like baseball or softball but soccer didn't exist in wildwood soccer did not exist in wildwood at least during my time well you may or may not be aware that there's adult kickball leagues uh which is basically an an excuse to get together and you know consume some adult beverages i thought that was called softball well, there's that too, but when it's not softball season, you have kickball. But I am happy to report, I just saw this at my uh, son's elementary school recently. My son's in kindergarten. We were there for a carnival or something. And I look up and he's playing kickball. He and another guy, they were playing one-on-one kickball. So let me explain how that works. One of them's the pitcher and one of them's the batter. And so every play is a home run. It was hilarious. I'm, watching <laughs> this. I'm like, you got to get a little bit more reinforcements. There's no chance. So, uh, well played. Anyway, we're done. Uh, hopefully Florida State doesn't kick it this week at NC State because uh, they need to get back on track. Let's get bowl eligible. And uh, regardless, Keith and I will wrap it up for you. Uh, the Wake Up Knowles show is 9 a.m. on Sunday morning. Primetime Knowles, 7 o'clock on Sunday evening. And we'll be back here 6 o'clock Wednesdays for the front row. Until then, Keith, I'm Tom. So long. I'll be- Sit